This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. With me today is Jeremy Crandall, the Director of Federal and State Policy for the National Association of Community Health Centers, to essentially discuss what healthcare policy reforms that Democrats can salvage by the end of uh, next month uh, via Senate reconciliation, or what they can move uh, via the recently proposed Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Great to be on with you, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. Jeremy's uh, bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners will recall last year the Biden administration and congressional D's hoped to pass in tandem two reconciliation bills, one addressing hard infrastructure, roads and bridges, and the other soft infrastructure that included several healthcare policy provisions, including adding hearing services to Medicare Part B, make Medicaid coverage permanently available 12 months postpartum, enhancing the ACA marketplace subsidies, providing for national paid family leave, expanding the child tax credit, providing tuition uh, free uh, to community college, and funding policies to address the climate crisis. President Biden signed the former, which turned out to be a $1.2 trillion bill into law last November. The latter bill the $2.4 trillion Build Back Better Act was passed by the House last fall. In the Senate, however, the legislation has, as has been widely reported, a tortured experience. Last week, a few provisions of the House passed bill reappeared in Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's deal with Senator Manchin, the $739 billion Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The bill that Schumer hoped passed this week would extend enhanced ACA insurance tax credits, allow the Medicare program limited liability to negotiate drug prices, and would allocate $369 billion essentially in tax credits under the title Energy Security to address the worsening climate crisis. We'll begin to discuss on balance uh, what health care policy reforms the D's can pass within and possibly beyond the Inflation Reduction Act before the Congress adjourns later this year, is again the NACHC's Jeremy Crandall. So with that as uh, background, uh, Jeremy, I'll start with a softball question. Uh, could you briefly describe the mission and work of the National Association of Community Health Centers? Yes, I'm happy to. And uh, for our uh, audience today, you may hear me reference uh, us as NAC, um, that is NACHC, National Association of Community Health Centers. Um, and we are essentially the national membership organization uh, for, for federally qualified health centers, also known as FQHCs or health centers. FQHCs is, is the term that um, most folks that are familiar with health policy have probably heard before. Um, health centers are federally funded or federally supported nonprofit community directed pri uh, provider clinics. We serve as the health home um, for approximately 30 million Americans. Um, and, that, and that includes one in five people on Medicaid, one in three people living in poverty. Um, and it's really important for me to emphasize it is the collective mission the mandate and um, related to how we are regulated um, at the federal level, um, under federal law, under federal regulations, 
to provide access to any person that walks through our door, regardless of ability to pay. Um, we also very much pride ourselves on the fact that we provide high quality, cost effective uh, primary and preventive care, but also uh, dental care, behavioral health, pharmacy services, and then also just as important, other enabling or support services. Um, and we can go into that during our conversation that really are designed to, to treat the whole person, to provide both primary and wraparound care um, for people that live in medically underserved areas, regardless of whether they have insurance um, or not, or what type of insurance they have, um, or their ability to pay for, for their care. So um, there are approximately, uh, I think I mentioned 1,400 health centers um, across the country. Um, there is a health center in almost every single congressional district. Um, it's, it's not exactly um, all um, uh, every single one, um, but um, really can't emphasize enough, you know, the, the, the broad um, reach that we have um, across the country for medically underserved populations and communities. Thank you. Uh, great answer. Uh, in some, your population is probably, if not in fact, the most demanding. So I think uh, this is appropriate to uh, talk with your organization and you specifically, obviously, relative to where we might get with um, a reforms uh, this uh, session under, of course, uh, a, a D White House and a Democratic majority in both houses. Um, you're well aware that the public health emergency was recently extended for another 90 days about two, three weeks ago. Um, so I only say that for context because when we get into the details, uh, obviously the PHE uh, matters. So let's get into some of these specifics. Since I did mention there are related provisions about which your organization is interested in this uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which relative to the medical provisions substantially pared down from what uh, this soft infrastructure was promised to do, what, 18 plus months ago, regardless. Um, let's start with your uh, comments, or your perspective relative to extending the ACA subsidies. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Thank you for the, the question, David. Um, you know, I think the best place to start is uh, to keep in mind, number one, um, the patients that we serve, and number two, how closely linked um, the, the policy conversations that are happening with the Inflation Reduction Act right now, specifically as it relates to extension um, of the Affordable Care Act subsidies, how closely that conversation is tied to the conversation around the PHE and people on Medicaid. So let me start at the beginning a little bit, and I touched on this somewhat um, when I was talking about uh, our health centers. Nearly half of all patients seen by health centers are on Medicaid. Um, it's a little less than 50%, but essentially what you're talking about um, is that one in every two patients that walks through our door um, is on the Medicaid program. And so it cannot be underscored enough why a strong Medicaid program that protects enrollees, obviously, especially in a tough economy, you know, that is when Medicaid uh, coverage is so critical because, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a counter cyclical program. You know, you're going to see enrollment um, and Medicaid go up when, whenever the, you know, the unemployment rate goes up and the economy, you know, sees a dip. That's that the protection of the Medicaid program, having a strong Medicaid program is critical for community health centers to be able to serve their patients effectively. Um, and then not just talking about Medicaid, but 91 percent of our patients um, in FQHCs are at or below 200 percent of the federal poverty level. Um, you know, that really is a staggering number. Um, and then 
finally, um, you know, I think that, you know, depending on where you are, or what, how you've ever, um, you know, interacted with a community health center, it's important to also keep this in mind. 42% of health centers are in rural areas. And so, you know, it, it you know, the, the, the makeup of patients that go into a health center really depends on, on the health center. And the final piece that I'll add, and then I'll go over to, to, to your question on the Inflation Reduction Act, um, is to keep in mind that health centers often function on shoestring budgets where um, they're where they're the only option for care for the patients that come into the health center, whether because of where they live, their ability to pay, their insurance status, the competency of care that they ultimately need. And so keeping that landscape in mind, that is why protecting access to coverage, but also having multiple avenues of coverage for our patients is so critical. And so think of these th these two items as congruent, where yes, absolutely, I think you were alluding to it, um, you know, that the, the current version of the, of the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, does not have um, many of the provisions that were in the House version of the Build Back Better Act. You know, absolutely. NAC um, was, it was and still is a strong supporter of Build Back Better. There are a raft of provisions um, related to the Medicaid program in the build house version of Build Back Better that would make a tremendous difference for the Medicaid population. You know, there was, and actually most interestingly, the, the key item related to uh, ensuring a pathway to coverage for the people that live in the 12 non-Medicaid expansion states, mm -hmm. that actually, you know, as we all remember, that that the, the final sort of proposal, what they landed on, was a pathway through ACA coverage. Right. Um, but it's also important to, to, to mention because Regardless of whether it's in the current framework or something Congress does in the future, there are a lot of other really important Medicaid provisions in there. Um, uh, you know, uh, extension of, excuse me, extension, permanent establishment of postpartum uh, Medicaid coverage, um, enhanced funding for um, Native, Native Hawaiian health centers and urban Indian organizations, um, Medicaid coverage for justice populations, strengthening the CHIP program, and you know, really innovative tools like express lane eligibility. Anybody who's a Medicaid geek would know there is a lot, there was a lot in Build Back Better that would really make a difference for the Medicaid population. Now, we don't know, you know, ultimately where that is going to end up long term. But what is really important is that because, and I'm sure we may touch on this, because of the uncertainty about what is going to happen when the public health emergency ultimately expires and when states are going to have to undertake their uh, Medicaid redetermination processes, there is going to be one of the most substantial shifts in coverage that we've seen, you know, essentially since the Affordable Care Act passed, you know, or fluctuations, if you will. And so the more that we can do to provide a pathway through the marketplace, through the Affordable Care Act, which extension of these subsidies will do, um, the better, you know, and, and really the last piece I'll say, and then, and then I'll stop, David, is health centers, and, and I'll, I'll touch more on this, I'll give you the brief nugget on this right now, health centers do a ton of work in the outreach and enrollment space. And what we are inevitably going to see is the very uh, people and communities and families and populations that are going to be most impacted by that, those shifts in Medicaid, the, the first you know, folks that they interact with are going to be our health center staff. And so, again, the more they can have a pathway to coverage through the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, which this extension in the Inflation Reduction Act does, the better off they're going to be and the more protected they'll be. 
So I'll stop there, David. No, thank- I, know that was a, I know that was a lot. So no, no, I'll thank you. There. Thank you for that. So uh, just a few co- uh, comments to uh, flesh this out further. Uh, per your mention of uh, at 200% of poverty, um, these ACA subsidies are certainly important. Uh, the lower you are relative to percent of uh, FPL. Um, second, you mentioned the non-med, the 12 uh, non-Medicaid states that would, under the Build Back Better House bill, that would get addressed through uh, the ACA marketplaces. And then, of course, you mentioned this this well-known Medicaid cliff issue, which means that, for listeners unaware, in legislation to address the pandemic in 2020, the Congress stipulated that if you enrolled at the time, uh, at that time, you could not be disenrolled during the PHE. So we're still in the PHE. If your financial circumstances change for the better, you could still remain under Medicaid again during the PHE. So the question begged is, when the PHE ends, what happens to what are guesstimated to be about 16 million people who are now, uh, and 7 million of whom are children, who might lose their coverage because they would no longer qualify for Medicaid, and of course, that's a substantial worry or concern for your population. The um, the Medicaid cliff issue is not in the Inflation Reduction Act, so I'm assuming you're perfectly fine with the fact that it certainly appears the Senate's not going to pass this bill. They'll go into recess, and there'll be advocacy and lobbying efforts during the recess period such that by September, uh, there's a possibility that the Senate takes up addressing uh, softening, if not completely remediating this Medicaid cliff. Am I correct? David, I, I apologize. I'm not sure if I understood your question. Are you asking, uh, can you ask your, I'm not sure. Can you ask your question? Again? So I'll just put it simply. Obviously you're very concerned about the potential, uh, disenrollment of these 16, approximately 16 yeah. million Medicaid beneficiaries. Absolutely. And that question is not addressed in this current version of this Inflation Reduction Act. So I'm assuming uh, NAC and any and all Medicaid-focused organizations are going to push hard for this to be addressed. How might that, maybe I'll phrase it as, how might that, what policy might work best to soften or reduce the cliff? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So first of all, you know, I'm not... I'm not a, a member of Congress. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a senator. I'm not a staffer. And so, you know, number one, de- defer to them and also recognize that, you know, progress comes in sometimes big bites and sometimes and sometimes small bites. And, and I've worked in, in this space long enough to to both understand and, and respect that. Um, you know, I, I will say to your question, I, I hope I answer it as effectively as I can, that there are a lot of folks in the Medicaid community um, that are very aware and very concerned about this Medicaid cliff. And so, um, you know, NAC is a, as a member of the Partnership for Medicaid. Um, you know, we routinely um, partner with and engage with organizations like Families USA and um uh, center on, uh, center on budget and policy priorities and, you know, range of stakeholders in the, the Medicaid community that are all talking about how are states going to prepare for this? Um, yes, there, you know, there were specifically in Build Back Better, um, there was a provision that essentially created a glide path 
um, or wind down of the 6.2% FMAP bump. Um, and, and it's more complicated than, than you know, that. It, but there's plenty of resources out there for folks to, to be able to really dive in. But essentially created a glide path instead of, instead of a cliff um, for states as the FMAP bump went down and they started to undertake what essentially are um, states are required to do, you know, periodic redeterminations mm-hmm. of their Medicaid populations. That is a normal course of action. Um, our perspective is you, that's why we keep saying glide path and not cliff is you can't do it all at once. You can't immediately, you know, disenroll every person on Medicaid. You have to be very careful um, with how you're gathering their income information. You know, obviously, many folks have been very mobile, um, you know, during the pandemic. And inevitably for low-income populations, mobile, uh, um, housing insecurity is, is a huge challenge. And so the more deliberate and the more careful states can be to make sure that they're doing everything they can to contact enrollees, to get the information, the, the income and the other information they need to check eligibility, the better. And so um, that's why, you know, the, what was in Built Back Better related to this glide path was so important. Um, I can't really speak to, you know, what Congress is ultimately going to do between now and September. I think the main thing I will say, David, is we in the Medicaid community are going to continue to talk about this. Um, you know, th- this isn't this problem isn't going away. It is tied to the public health emergency. And ultimately, when that expiration comes um, and, you know, we remain hopeful that Congress um, and the Biden administration will do everything it can to prepare for this. I will say um, just one last thing that the Centers for, for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS um, and HHS, deserves a ton of credit for how in, um, intentional they've been in providing resources um, to prepare states, to prepare, prepare Medicaid enrollees, to prepare providers like health centers and other stakeholders for this unwinding. Um, They've Mm -hmm. really been aggressive in, you know, whether it's, you know, webinars providing, you know, uh, um, information packets and state health officials letters and um, just all kinds of engagement, whether, um, you know, on on paper or verbally or otherwise, they've they've been doing a really good job thus far. And it feels like they're going to continue to do that. Okay, thank you, amongst other organizations, and I'll note this because I've interviewed him at least once, and that's, of course, you're very familiar with the National Association of State Medicaid Directors, who are obviously very concerned about these issues. Yes, let's go to, um, other than the Medicaid enrollment uh, issue, amongst other large concerns that ride along with uh, the continuation of the PHE is telehealth benefits. So the simple explanation is they were expanded during the pandemic or during the PHE for the obvious reason, uh, patients, certain patients would be more appropriately, if possible, seen uh, remotely uh, to reduce the transmission of the virus or the infection rate. Uh, so there's similar concern relative to expanded telehealth benefits continuing or persisting beyond the conclusion of the PHE. Obviously, your organization has a, a position on this. Two questions. One, and this is always remarkable, and I read this data, the extent to which the telehealth, particularly audio only, was expanded or exploited, and in your view, to the extent it's been beneficial to your population. 
David, thank you very much for that, uh, that question on telehealth. Um, really, the best place to start um, is that it cannot be understated um, how critical a lifeline telehealth has been um, for both patients and health centers, um, both early in the, in the early months of the pandemic and right up until today as we're talking. Um, I was pulling um, some of my old notes. Um, in April of 2020, 1,600 health center sites Temporary, temporarily closed due to the pandemic. Now, you know, obviously in, the, in those beginning months, it was a vastly different landscape than, than we're looking at now. But health centers, like many other providers, but health centers really had to shift, um, you know, and find innovative ways to protect access to care for our patients. And so um, here's a really telling stat that I think paints the picture. In 2018, only 43% of health centers offered some type of telehealth care, that number is now 98%. Um, that, that, is, that is a staggering evolution um, that, that you could say um, in terms of, of you know, being more innovative and reaching patients. And so um, we knew al almost immediately how critical telehealth was for our patients. What we know now is how important it is to be able to deliver that care in as effective way as you possibly can. Great example of that. Um, is audio only. I'd be more than happy to to dive deeper into that. I, I heard, you know, I understand, you know, concerns about it, but, you know, especially for health center patients, um, whether, you know, we're talking about seniors, we're talking about people without access to smartphones um, or people that live in rural areas without access to broadband, telehealth care is really only possible via audio only technology. Um, we, you know, we have a, a rat, we hear a raft of stories from health centers, specifically in rural areas. Uh, one that I vividly remember is a health center CEO um, in North Carolina who talks about, you know, some of his patients um, still use rotary dial telephones. And, you know, audio only is the only option for obviously for for a patient like that. Um, one other item I'll share, and, and then, you know, we can sort of take this conversation in any, any direction. A couple other items I'll share. Um, Congress and CMS um, and state governments, that's another important, <clears throat> excuse me, piece here. They deserve immense credit for spurring the flexible telehealth policies that we mostly still have in place right now both on the Medicare and the Medicaid side. Um, but as you, you alluded to, you know, many of these flexibilities specifically for Medicare um, will ultimately expire at the end of the public health emergency. Um, for, you know, policy wonks that are listening, um, there was an, a 151-day extension that Congress put in place um, through um, one of the budget bills they passed. I want to say it was in April, mm -hmm. um, where essentially that 150, at, once the PHE ultimately does end, there's another 151 days that those Medicare uh, flexibilities will continue. But then again, absent action from, from Congress, a number of flexibilities that are critical to us, and we can go deeper into that, I'm happy to, um, will go away. The one last piece that I'll share, because I really think um, this is both super important. It's very important for health centers, but I do think this would also apply to other providers as well. Um, you know, there are so many core issues in the health policy space that people are talking about how important it is for us to make progress on. Great example right now is behavioral health. Another really good example, especially for our patients, um, addressing social determinants of health, um, <clears throat> you know, and all the pieces related to wraparound care, food insecurity and access to transportation challenges and everything, you know, care coordination um, for people with chronic conditions. All of those various elements 
telehealth is a critical piece of making progress there. Um, one last item I'll share and then and then I'll pause. Um, the the Capitol Hill, uh, the House and the Senate um, have been you know, very aggressive and very intentional over the last 18 months or two years um, in seeking input from the health policy community, specifically on behavioral health. I know that Senator Chris Murphy, Senator Bill Cassidy put out a request for information about a year or so ago. Um, I believe the Senate Health Committee, or uh, it was either Health or Finance, I apologize. Can't, I, I can pull it up as we're sitting here. But both of them did, uh, both of those two entities um, put out requests for information re specifically related to making progress, um, how Congress could make progress on behavioral health. One of the most interesting things that I picked up when we sought feedback from our members, almost every single response said, if you want to keep making progress on behavioral health, telehealth flexibilities have to continue. And obviously that makes a ton of sense, but it really caught me how um, how universal that was, that you know, every provider that was writing back saying, if you want my feedback, you got to make sure the telehealth um, access continues unabated um, as we continue on. So I'll pause there. I'm happy to go in any direction you'd like, David. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, you know, Senator Wyden finance, particularly, of course, not not to the exclusion of uh, Patty Murray, the chair, woman of help, uh, but a, a large mental health bill has been expected for some while. Um, so leave it at that on, on the tele No, David, it was, I, it was finance. Apolo yeah, apologies right. to all our listeners for, <laughs> for, for mixing that up. I, my apologies. But it I, was I, I know this because I've had several conversations with Wyden staff director on this. So in any event, Excellent. um, Excellent. you know, the big issue I always, oftentimes, not always, oftentimes cite on telehealth use is there's this ongoing debate, particularly at CB on whether telehealth is substitutive or duplicative. Uh, but we won't go down that road. I do want to get to we have I have two more areas I'd like to touch upon, um, and that is and this is a generic uh, across the board. Everyone's concerned. I would think um, probably maybe no more so than uh, your world, and that is workforce issues. In fact, there was just news today that Congress is thinking about extending certain um, visas uh, for healthcare workers. Uh, because needless to say, obviously the the pandemic has been a big hit to um, uh, healthcare workforce and providers maintaining adequate staffing ratios. So, curious to know how how are you managing? How's the FQHC world ha managing uh, workforce adequacy issues? Yeah, um, David. Before we talk about workforce, um, there was one item because I, I heard you um, <clears throat> excuse me I heard you allude to it in your introduction on telehealth. Um, but on data, um, there was actually some interesting information that came out from HRSA, the Health Services and Services Administration, mm -hmm. and specifically the uniform data system that is so central to data collection for health centers. They had 2020 data that found that in-person visits decreased by 30 percent from the year before, while virtual visits increased by by 6,000 percent. And I, I, not to, I know hearing these numbers maybe is, you know, it, it's hard to capture. It's a little different when you're reading it. But really, you know, that data does provide an early snapshot of the substitutive effect um, of telehealth on uh, health center patient utilization. I this is a that is a much longer conversation. Right. I very much recognize. You know, there are a lot of folks that are going to have a lot to say about what the data shows about about telehealth in the future. But I did want to share that. Thank you. Um, 
No, going over to, to the current state of the health center workforce, you know, to, to be candid, it's a, it's a pretty dire situation at, at the present time. Um, you know, I already touched on the comprehensive, you know, set of primary care services and wraparound care that health centers provide. Um, but it's not to be forgotten that health centers and health center workers have really been on the front lines fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. I know many other providers have been as well, you know, across the board, you know, our healthcare workers across this country um, really deserve deserve so much in terms of our thanks and, and higher pay and all those sorts of things. But specifically for health centers, um, health centers took on a, a massive role in vaccinating, providing the COVID-19 vaccine to Americans and administering COVID-19 tests to underserved communities. Um, and really one of the pieces that, that we're obviously proud of as well is that most of the folks that receive the vaccine and, and tests as well are from racial or ethnic minority backgrounds. And so um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic absolutely has exacerbated what were already existing weaknesses um, in the health center system in terms of the strain um, on our healthcare workers. Um, we did do a, a study on uh, a study on this exact issue, and I'll just share a couple of stats about this. We did this um, within the last, I want to say it was about three months or, or so ago, but um, 68% of our health centers reported losing as much as 25% of their workforce in the last six months. Um, uh, 65% of respondents b- believe employees left for better financial opportunities at competing healthcare organizations. Um, 92% said they experienced additional, would have experienced additional turnover without the federal resources that came about. Um, and then almost all, 97% said that additional, additional federal funding um, to allow, you know, to in- increase salaries commensurate with other employers would be a top policy priority. Last piece I'll share from the survey um, is that the key, the, the highest ranked categories of workforce loss um, were administrative staff, behavioral health staff, um, and then dental care staff. And so, um, yeah, I mean, to, to really put a fine point on it, the future of our workforce is, is uncertain. And, um, you know, we're having to do more with less the strain on our workforce, you know, on their own, you know, mental health of our workers um, is a serious problem right now. And so um, happy to talk more, uh, you know, about how we can address it. There's a number of key federal programs that are central to um, how health center functions. I'm talking about the National Health Service Corps. Um, there's something called, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a wordy acronym, but the Teaching Health Center Graduate Medical Education Program, which essentially places mental and excuse me, medical and dental residents um, in community health centers. The Nurse Corps Scholarship Program. Each of these programs, you know, because to be a, an FQHC, to be a federally qualified health center, there's a raft of federal laws and regulations that we have to abide by. Um, but you know, and, and in return for that. Um, we are really that backstop for underserved communities and underserved Americans, you know, that gets to uh, us serving any patient, regardless of ability to pay. The way that we are able to do one of the ways we are able to do that work um, is with this federal support for these workforce programs. And so it really can't be lost, you know, whether, you know, a number of these provisions were in Build Back Better. Um, these are definitely future priorities as we engage with Capitol Hill 
But, you know, the, this funding goes directly to the people that are serving our patients, and it, it's critically important. So I'll pause there. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about some other priorities that we have as well. No, thank you for that. And that begs, since you mentioned HRSA, the question of uh, specific to, I'm sure a, a good number of your uh, clinics are in health services shortage areas, which of course is a, a large program uh, HRSA runs or attempts to address. So th- that is a whole other conversation. With the time we have left, I did want to work in this last question uh, and would not surprise listeners in the slightest. Uh, there where I've done 25 plus uh, interviews concerning uh, the climate crisis. I made note of uh, the tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so my question for you is, what's give me sort of top of line overview of NAC's uh, state of play on on this issue? Because of course, um, and it's pretty intuitive, uh, the most vulnerable to uh, climate crisis-related health harms are, of course, Medicare and Medicaid uh, beneficiaries, uh, particularly children, certainly the frail elderly, particularly children. Nijam just published, I just did an interview of the authors of the review article on health harms uh, children experience, both from just uh, fossil fuel combustion, PM2.5, and uh, result in greenhouse warming effects. Uh, children really... Uh, are at risk and and suffer. So again, relative to your organization's work, this is sometimes term obviously since you use the phrase the social determinant. Uh, of course, it's, it's it's I would argue it's an entirely other category, unique. Regardless, um, where are your members on this? Uh, yeah, sorry, David. I thought we might have been been on mute. Um, where so the the. To answer your direct question, where are members on this? Um, They're very aware of the links between um, climate-related disasters and climate-related weather events and our patients. Um, You know, I think the important, you alluded to this in the the previous question, but um, I I do want to touch on this. Federally qualified health centers, FQHCs, um, are required to provide services in geographic areas, zip codes, um, designated by HRSA as health professional shortage areas. And so um, as a result of that, it, you know, it is, you know, and when I say very likely, it is often the case um, that health centers and the patients they serve are in communities that have faced generations of dis- disinvestment where whether environmental hazards abound, um, or, you know, impacts related to extreme weather events um, are going to have a disproportionate impact on our patients. Um, and so we're certainly paying very close attention to, to the conversations on the Hill related to, to climate. But I think the important piece to keep in mind is um, the real world examples that we've seen on the ground the first example that I would have um, is, you know, is the prevalence of wildfires, um, obviously in California right now, but also Oregon, Texas, Colorado, other locations. We hear routinely um, about the impact that wildfire events have um, on health centers. It has a direct impact on access to care for our patients. Here's a really important piece also to keep in mind. Um, you know, by nature of, of you know, their income or, um, you know, the, the resources or lack thereof that they may have, our patients um, are heavily impacted by displacement. Um, you know, when they, in some cases, you know, have to relocate hundreds of miles away 
with few, if any, transportation options. Um, that displacement does not just impact our patients. It also affects health center staff, you know, that, that most likely, you know, live in that community. Um, when, you know, wildfires, by their very nature, have a drastic effect on air quality, leading to higher rates of asthma and respir asthma respiratory <laughs> infections. And again, you know, our patients, you know, you know, have significant prevalence of chronic care conditions. And so, you know, and, and then one other example that I would give where we received, you know, so one of the things that we've been doing is really, you know, asking our members, our, our health centers, our state associations for feedback on what they're seeing on the ground. Another excellent example um, is hurricanes and, you know, and flooding, whether it's associated with a hurricane mm -hmm. or, or not. Um, you know, we heard directly from our South Carolina um, a, a association um, following Hurricane Dorian when there was, you know, drastic and severe flooding in the South Carolina area. Um, what they were seeing was the resulting floods led to quite a quite a prevalence of insufficient rebuilding and repair um, for some of the communities. And then the very the, the people that lived in the homes that were not sufficiently repaired or rebuilt, there are patients and then they come into health centers, you know, with you know, greater exposure to mold in their homes, um, leading to upper respiratory issues. And so we all, we often hear how all these pieces fit together. Well, I'm here to tell you, you know, in, in hearing from our members, that that is a, there are many real world examples of where that happens, where, you know, the impacts that we're seeing, whether, you know, from environmental hazards or climate related events, um, those impacts very much show up on our doorstep, both with impacts on patients impacts on our staff and then impacts on the ability of the health centers, you know, to keep the lights on, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and to, to be able to, to continue serving their patients. I will just put in one more plug here. Um, and I'm happy to keep talking about this topic, but there's one more plug that I'll put in one of the, um, another critical federal priority for NAC and for our health centers is investment in infrastructure. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, responding to an extreme weather event or, a, excuse me, a, a climate related event, you know, something as drastic as a hurricane or a wildfire. And you're talking about rebuilding, you know, some sort of uh, facility, but also being able to be forward thinking, you know, to being able to, um, uh, you know, improve building standards and emergency energy resiliency. Those things cost money, you know, and, and so at the end of the day. Um, you know, we're always trying to build more dental operatories and, and you know, larger waiting rooms and, um, you know, more tools and services um, within our footprints to be able to serve our patients. Um, and, and that requires investment, you know, from the federal government. And so I, I think that's the last. I'll pause there. I, I know we just covered a lot there. I'll pause there. No, thank you. I thought you're going to make note. You, you would feel, for for example, an FQHC in, in uh, eastern Kentucky at the moment, but your last point about yes, uh, infrastructure. Great, thank you, David. Yeah, your last point about infrastructure reminds me of uh, this country could probably use a um, an updated Hill-Burton uh, law, which of course largely explains uh, still uh, the hospital network throughout the country. So, with that uh, said, to say, Jeremy, we're about our time. So, I appreciate this overview. A lot on your plate, needless to say, and least of which is um, to see what, uh, again, uh, the Congress can move either by September 30th or through the remainder of this session, the end of December. So we'll see. But thank you for your perspective on these issues. I appreciate it. And good luck the rest of the year. 
Yeah, David, thank you for your interest in health centers and, and the work that we do. Really, our, our providers on the ground are the ones doing the really hard work of, of you know, seeing patients every day and doing great work in, in that regard. And would just say to your listeners, thank you for hearing this. And, you know, if ever they want to connect with NAC or with individual health centers in their community, would encourage them to do so. So thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. Stay well. Thank you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.